Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovis. And my name is Dr. Nicholas Carvelis. And we're going to continue our journal club today with talking about some uh, various causes of uh, buttock slash gluteal region pain um, not associated with uh, lumbar pathology. I know that's kind of a weird introductory sentence and we're trying to figure out how uh, to fit these three papers together. Uh, but they do deal with some different diagnoses that do not have to deal with the lumbar spine, uh, but do cause pain in uh, the greater gluteal region. Um, so Dr. K, why don't you uh, introduce us to the first study that we're going to be talking about? Yeah, uh, definitely. And as usual, we're going to do three studies. And as usual, we'll try to give a little bit of a background before we try to concisely uh, summarize the studies and then uh, a little bit of our clinical application of the results. So the first article is uh, titled, Are, uh, Are Steroids Required in the Treatment of Ganglion Impar Blockade in Chronic Coccidinia? A Prospective Double-Blinded Clinical Trial. This was uh, published uh, by doctors Senkan and colleagues in the Korean of Journal Pain, uh, uh, Korean Journal of Pain in 2019. So. As we talked about, just doing a quick uh, background here. So uh, for uh, coccidinia, a simple definition of coccidinia is uh, 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 pain localized to the region of the coccyx, uh, obviously. Um, uh, there is limited, uh, in terms of you know, the incidence of this, that may be one thing you're thinking right away is how, you know, how common is uh, coccidinia. So um, there is limited epidemiologic data regarding chronic coccidinia. There was one study uh, that I was able to find uh, back in the 1950s by Dr. Uh, Gormley and, and his colleagues that found that coccidinia was present in about uh, uh, two to three percent of patients with chronic low back pain that were coming into their hospital. But really, like I said, there's limited research on the incidence of this disease process. Um, however, you know, as clinicians, uh, when we do see patients that have this uh, pathology, we all know that it can be uh, very debilitating and have a significant impact on uh, the patient's um, uh, function, quality of life, and health, uh, especially because it is a disease that we're still learning in terms of the optimization of diagnosis and treatment. So that can be very, uh, have a, you know, a significant impact on, on the patient as many chronic uh, refractory pain conditions can. So in terms of, uh, although we don't have great epidemiologic data in terms of incidence, we do know that there are certain risk factors for coccidinia. So uh, female gender uh, uh, tends to be one based on the literature, obesity, um, ex external trauma, you know, whether that be from a fall in the buttock area. If, if someone's coming in with coccyx region pain and they report a, you know, a fall on ice or a fall on a cement, that's definitely uh, uh, puts off a little bit of alarm bell in my head and is a risk factor. Internal trauma, you know, if, uh, from childbirth requiring instrumentation is another risk factor. And then obviously certain conditions like ankylosing spondylitis or having tumors in the region, uh, especially if they required surgery, th these are all things that uh, uh, could increase the risk of developing chronic refractory coccidinia. So if we think about the uh, treatment options for coccidinia, these are these include but are not uh, limited to uh, things as simple as uh, positioning aids, so uh, something as simple as a cushion, uh, physical therapy modalities, uh, coccygeal manual manipulation. Interestingly enough, if you look at the literature, that does seem to be a fairly effective um, uh, treatment modality in terms of the manual manip manipulation of the coccyx. And then obviously uh, oral medications, um, uh, including NSAIDs and neuropathic meds, local steroid injections, so not just the 
the image-guided procedure that we're going to discuss today with the uh, ganglion impar block, but um, there's other local injections with a, a variety in terms of their approach, uh, including injections at the sacrococcygeal uh, junction. And then, obviously, treatment options include the ganglion impar block, which we're going to go into uh, more detail in a second, and then surgical interventions, including uh, coxygectomy. So, uh, focusing a little bit more on the uh, ganglion impar block, so uh, what that is, is it's a therapeutic image-guided procedure uh, uh, that targets the ganglion impar, which is the caudal termination of the paired paravertebral sympathetic chain, and that ganglion impar is located anterior to the coccyx. So uh, the ganglion impar block has different therapeutic utilizations, including for the treatment of uh, visceral pain in the setting of pelvic malignancy. That may be uh, its most common application, uh, but obviously, as indicated in this article, it is also utilized for the treatment of uh, chronic uh, refractory uh, coccidinia. So now going into the uh, details of the results of this study, so the purpose of this article was to evaluate the role of uh, corticosteroid for ganglion impar block. The secondary goal was to uh, research the effect of the impar block on the pain and depression so they actually looked at uh, mood, uh, specifically, obviously, depression in these patients with uh, chronic coccidinia and the impact of the, uh, of the treatment. And <clears throat> what they found was uh, in this uh, randomized double-blind study, uh, study they, uh, in which they had two different groups. So the, the first group uh, were obviously patients with chronic refractory coccidinia that were randomized to receive bupivacaine plus uh, uh, corticosteroids, specifically methylprednisolone. And that group uh, included 34 patients. The second group uh, received local anesthetic only, and that, and that group was uh, 39 patients. And so <clears throat> ultimately what they found was that the pain and depression scores, which were evaluated at uh, one hour after the injection, uh, one month and three months, that in, in, in both of these groups, and I think that's a key point, is that in both of these groups there was a significant improvement in pain and depression scales at all these time points. So um, the uh, one month, three months uh, for uh, depression, and then the uh, one hour, one month, and three months for pain. Um, uh, although at the one hour, as we would expect, at the one hour time point, there was no significant difference between the two groups. At the one month and three months, there was a uh, significant difference in the steroid and local anesthetic group uh, with a significant improvement relative to the local anesthetic uh, uh, group alone. So if we think about the results of this study and how we would apply it clinically, I think, like I said, some of the major take-home points from this is that the uh, image-guided therapeutic procedure in the ganglion impar block for chronic coccidinia was effective whether the, it was the utilization of local anesthetic alone or in combination with local anesthetic uh, plus uh, steroid. However, with the addition of uh, steroid, there was a... Uh, greater uh, improvement in both the uh, pain and, and depression scores in, in this specific study. Um, so uh, some major things that I thought I, I would apply clinically is number one, um, I've, I've had the ganglion impar block in my toolbox in terms of treating patients with chronic coccidinia, so I think this just uh, provides further support to that, although definitely recognizing that um, you know, we need to continue to have larger power and, and well-designed studies, including 
uh, randomized controlled trials with uh, with placebo um, uh, treatments um, with with even even better optimization of the control groups. But um, another. Uh, a key take-home point for this for me was that for those patients, which is not uncommon in this chronic uh, pain population, especially with these difficult-to-treat diagnoses like uh, uh, coccidinia, and we mentioned some of the risk factors including obesity. So if you have a patient, for example, with poorly controlled diabetes or another uh, another um, comorbidity that may make you not want to administer steroids, this would give you some uh, consideration to using just local anesthetic. Um, and some of the thought processes, because you know this is not the only study that has showed long-term benefit with the use of local anesthetic only. And you know there's there's studies looking at the treatment of rotator cuff tendinopathy and having long-term benefit with the use of local anesthetic only. And one of the theories in regards to that, and of course you know we will continue to investigate this and, and more work needs to be done in, in, full, in terms of fully understanding it. But one of the things we do know is that, for example, bupivacaine does act on the NMDA receptor. It doesn't solely modulate the sodium channel, um, but it does have some action on the NMDA receptor as well. And we know that the NMDA receptor uh, plays such a pivotal role in terms of the chronification or the centralization, central sensitization, or peripheral sensitization. So just a, a, you know some thought in terms of why we're potentially able to get longer lasting uh, benefit with just local anesthetic, because obviously that's one of the interesting things from this study is that even at three months, there was a significant improvement from baseline with these patients that just received um, the bupivacaine. Yeah, it is always interesting. I mean, you know, you brought up the uh, rotary cuff tendinopathy study, um, but there, you know, there is this idea of, you know, I think in, in residency, we would say the re resetting the pain thermostat, right? Where, you know, some for some reason when you introduce local anesthetic into an area and you just break that normal pain cycle, you can get some uh, pretty impressive uh, relief even beyond the, you know, four to 12 hours of whichever local anesthetic that you may be using. Um, but also not to be uh, taken away from is the fact that the steroid group still did better, right? And so steroids were uh, helpful in calming this down uh, to a, a more significant extent um, for that uh, time period. Um, and so, you know, great study, obviously, um, you know, a rel relatively decent sized for a, a pain study for looking at something that's not super duper common, um, but a nice tool for uh, people to think about because this is a pretty debilitating process for the patients that, uh, that live with it and that suffer with it. Um, you know, it's not exactly the easiest thing for people to carry around a donut with them all the time to be able to sit on and um, and trying to figure out ways to maneuver their bodies to take to decrease pressure in that area. Yeah, I, I have a you know obviously we're a chronic uh, um, pain clinic and so uh, we have a certain select patient population. But you know I can think of uh, easily four or five patients right now that you know pe people that just uh, their lives have been significantly altered by this condition and you know they don't they're not looking for medications at least you know the 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 four or five patients that are popping to my head right now not really on any medications not looking for medications but you know they've undergone so many procedures and they're motivated and they've done so much work you know with you know all the conservative measures and just you know trying to have a positive impact for them so uh, anyways um it, it can key point being like Dr. Hovas brought up it can be a very frustrating condition uh, for the patients and, and difficult for us to treat. So moving on to the uh, second article here, 
uh, titled Ultrasound Guided Percutaneous Tenotomy for Gluteal Tendinopathy by uh, Dr. Baker and his colleagues, uh, published in the Orthopedic Journal of Sports Medicine in tw uh, 2020. So, uh, again, little background here, uh, both in terms of the disease process as well as the uh, the, the treatment itself. So, uh, greater trochanter region pain syndrome is a relatively uh, common cause of lateral uh, buttock region pain, uh, uh, most commonly due to tendinosis of the gluteus medius and or minimus, uh, with or without uh, trochanteric bursal involvement. Um, and uh, just real, as a real quick aside, I, I think that's an important thing uh, to, to discuss because, uh, you know, historically when people had lateral uh, buttock or thigh region pain and they had that pinpoint tenderness over the uh, trochanter uh, region, you know, historically as a medical uh, community, we, we thought of that as trochanteric bursitis and we may have treated it with steroid injections. But as our understanding of the disease process has evolved, uh, we now understand that uh, it's much, you know, it's more complex than that, and than just simply an inflammation of the of the bursa itself, and that uh, more often than not, there there is this tendinopathy involvement. And to have the best outcomes for the patient, it's it's important to keep that in mind and and to target that with our with our treatments. A quick aside, I think um, our training in uh, physical medicine rehabilitation kind of made us ultra sensitive to that idea um, of like the the lack of true inflammation that would coincide with a bursitis. Um, I know repeatedly we had numerous attendings, um, shout out to all UC, UCD PM&R attendings, that uh, would talk to us about how it is not a bursitis most of the time, right? How this, this is a tendinopathy, this is a chronic uh, uh, degenerative cascade uh, problem or tendinosis, uh, much more so than uh, kind of a, a true t um, bursitis. Um, and so, you know, we were, I think we were always keenly, our ears were always keenly perked to hear when people say, oh, my bursitis is acting up, uh, you know, with the proverbial eye roll coming from the peanut gallery uh, after people say that. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, uh, good, good points. And, and so, um, what, uh, just quickly in terms of incidence of greater trochanter region pain syndrome. So research studies estimate that uh, greater trochanter region pain syndrome affects around 10 to 25% of the population in industrialized countries. So just a, just a, as an example of the literature showing that this is a relatively uh, common uh, presentation for patients, as I'm sure we're all aware uh, in terms of patients coming into our clinics. So typically how it's gonna present as a quick review, so patients are gonna have that lateral hip pain localized over the greater troch, and they can have a referral pattern to the thigh uh, and or the knee. Um, and, and obviously that pain is often exacerbated by lying on the affected side. Um, so, you know, always a differential in terms of that gluteal region pain with some radiation into the, uh, into the thigh. Treatment options for it, you know, what we always talk about in terms of lifestyle activity modifications, therapies, medic medications, procedures, you know, specifically weight optimization is always a good thing and with the, uh, in this condition. And then with the physical therapy, obviously inclusion of hip girdle musculature uh, strengthening, including the hip abductors. Um, uh, both topical and oral medications can be considered for this, especially since it's a relatively superficial uh, condition uh, in terms of those topical medications. And then, 
you know, in terms of consideration of procedures, um, there may, you know, there's still uh, some utility in the uh, steroid injections. I think specifically if you have an acute flare and you really want to get the most out of the uh, physical therapy and the symptoms are preventing the patient from getting the most out of that physical therapy, I think that's where the uh, image-guided uh, inject steroid injections can serve some utilization. And then obviously platelet-rich plasma, uh, having some evidence behind it, but specifically for uh, this article we want to focus on, you know, if these patients are not responding to, to the treatments we just discussed, uh, we may consider advanced ultrasound-guided interventions, um, and specifically with this article, the use of percutaneous ultrasound-guided tenotomy. So briefly, uh, you know, what, um, what that is, this, <clears throat> uh, this is a treatment that's been uh, successfully utilized in a number of different uh, uh, chronic uh, tendinopathy conditions, uh, including uh, la lateral epicondylosis of the elbow region, uh, Achilles tendinopathy, patellar tendinopathy, uh, and even plantar uh, fasciitis. Um, uh, essentially what the technique is, it's uh, utilizing image guidance to have really a pinpoint uh, treatment of high frequency ultrasonic energy. So uh, uh, and the use of this energy to debride the pathologic tissue uh, uh, under constant irrigation. And so essentially utilizing diagnostic ultrasound, you would identify the area of tendinosis, which as we know typically would appear as kind of a hypoechoic area at the uh, region of the insertion of the, of the tendon. So if we're talking specifically about greater trochanter region pain syndrome, we're looking at the glute med and the glute min in terms of a hypoechoic region uh, uh, representing that, that tendinopathy, that tendinosis, uh, that pathologic tissue. And then um, once that's identified, there's a small incision made and the ultrasound, the uh, ultrasound needle is, because it is a, a larger gauge needle to be able to perform the tenotomy, so just a small incision. And then that needle is advanced to the target area under ultrasound guidance. And then, like I said, that high frequency ultrasonic energy is used under uh, constant irrigation to, uh, uh, to treat that, that pathologic uh, uh, area. And so uh, after that quick background, so in terms of this study, what it, what it showed, so this study included uh, 29 patients uh, that had chronic refractory pain that they defined as greater than four months uh, refractory to conservative measures. Uh, uh, pain due to greater trochanter region pain syndrome, and they confirmed with advanced imaging, whether that be with MRI or CT arthrogram, they confirmed that there was uh, tendinopathy present. And then these uh, patients underwent the treatment with ultrasound-guided percutaneous tenotomy that we just discussed, and then they were uh, follow up, followed up for an average of 22 months, specifically at three weeks, three months, six months, and 18-month uh, time points. And then they took a look at three different uh, outcome measures, the VAS score, the Harris HIP score, and the SF12 score. And that, like most pain, uh, chronic pain studies done now, that, that they did a good job of you know both a numeric pain rating score, but then also something that looked more at function and then also quality of life and patient satisfaction with those different measures. And what they found was that Specifically in terms of uh, the VAS, they found that there was a decrease from the average pre-procedure score of 5.86 on the numeric uh, uh, pain rating scale, uh, or on the uh, uh, VAS score, to uh, 2.82, so from 5.86 to 2.82 at 18 months. And actually the best improvement was at three months with a decrease from 5.86 to 2.24, um, and although that uh, um, went up a little bit, it's still a significant improvement. So the bottom line is there was a significant improvement in the VAS score at all 
uh, uh, at all time points. And that was true for the Harris HIP score, looking at not only pain but function, and then also the SF12 uh, health survey also had significant improvement at each uh, uh, outcome time point. So in terms of you know, clinical application of this, I think you know, the main thing being that, uh, as we discussed, greater trochanter region pain syndrome is actually a fairly uh, common diagnosis uh, and, and presentation uh, to the clinic. And uh, it can be difficult to treat uh, for multiple reasons, but um, uh, bottom line, having this, this tool, uh, since it's been proven you know, through multiple studies, including this study, to be a safe and effective uh, treatment, having this uh, in our toolbox, I think, is, is a very uh, uh, important thing to consider. And then, um, obviously, as, as usual, you know, we'll continue to try to have larger and, and uh, opt optimization of, of those trials, but um, uh, definitely, definitely some encouraging data in terms of the long-term outcomes. Yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting for us because currently, as of May 2020, um, this is not a procedure that either one of us do. Uh, and I think we've both looked at it. We've you know, read this study, read other studies related to it. Um, you know, these are some patients that, that we treat, and I think we use some of the more uh, conservative options uh, to be able to, to treat this. I know I've particularly liked platelet-rich plasma in this population, um, but for those patients that don't respond, um, you know, and I think this is a very interesting uh, option. Right? I mean, 18 out of the 22 after that 22 months of follow-up said that they would repeat the procedure, which is actually a pretty high outcomes. You know, granted, this is, you know, not double-blind randomized control um, or anything along those lines, but it is a nice case series that kind of looks at a population of patients that are are quite refractory to other options, and so it's pre it's pretty interesting. Yeah, definitely, and and you know, moving forward, uh, obviously, be I think a, a well-powered study with you know that treatment arm of the ultrasound guided percutaneous tenotomy versus PRP versus you know maybe just uh, uh, physical therapy alone or uh, you know kind of more conservative measures. That would be a really interesting study that could provide us with some good data, but. Um, so the last study we'll go over fairly uh, quickly here. Uh, this was a study looking at um, sacroiliac joint dysfunction and, and the diagnosis of it. So the, the title was Validity of uh, Physical Exam Maneuvers uh, in the Diagnosis of SI Joint uh, Pathology, um, uh, published in uh, 2020. And the objective of this study was to determine the diagnostic uh, validity of sacroiliac joint um, uh, maneuvers, and uh, in comparison to uh, intraarticular injection, which is uh, considered the gold standard in terms of uh, diagnosis. And so the subjects in this study, uh, th these were patients that were uh, diagnosed with SI joint pain, SI joint dysfunction, and then referred for uh, SI joint injection. And so those patients uh, were enrolled in the study and they underwent the fluoral guided SI joint injection. Um, but before the procedure, as well as actually after the injection too, but before the injection, they underwent six exam maneuvers, including uh, thigh thrusts, Gainslings, uh, Fabiers, um, uh, SI joint distraction, compression, and then uh, sacral thrust. And uh, these exam maneuvers were evaluated 
not only on their own, but also in combination for diagnostic power uh, uh, relative to the response to the injection, which was uh, defined, uh, a successful injection was defined, or a confirmatory injection was defined as greater than or equal to 80% of relief. And so um, uh, the diagnostic utility of each one of those exam maneuvers was compared to uh, those patients that did have uh, a significant, uh, as I said, over 80% improvement in, in their symptoms with the injection. And ultimately what they found uh, was that there really was no association uh, between e any single exam maneuver or a combination of maneuvers uh, versus the uh, anesthetic response to the injection itself. So, you know, in terms of clinical application, I think this goes back to what we've always, um, you know, we know that SI joint dysfunction is a difficult diagnosis to diagnose clinically. The way I was trained, uh, and I think Dr. Hovas uh, had a you know similar teaching and fellowship, and obviously uh, we had the benefit of going to the same residency, but um, I think the way we were trained was if we had three physical exam maneuvers that were positive, and of course there are conflicting articles out there, but you know, in terms of what we were taught in clinic, if we had three exam maneuvers that were positive, that you know helped to highly suggest or uh, uh, move us in the direction of diagnosing SI joint dysfunction. Um, so you know, obviously this this article uh, provides evidence somewhat conflicting with that, um, and I think it just you know continues to show the utilization the the benefit of uh, doing the image guided therapeutic or the image guide diagnostic injection, I still do utilize that. Uh, and when I talk to patients, I, I tell them like, hey, this is, you know, this injection is gonna be diagnostic for us. Um, because gluteal region, buttock region pain is, there is such a broad differential diagnosis for it. And I do think that, you know, obviously cautious and judicious use of the procedures, but I think this is where our procedures, our image guided procedures can really help us in terms of uh, narrowing down and, and, and pinpointing that diagnosis so then we can optimize, optimize our treatment uh, for them uh, moving forward. But um, yeah, just. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, so the older, some, some other studies that have been done uh, in the past, and I know you, you brought up some of the conflicting reports, but I think there was, uh, there've been a number of studies that show that if you have you know three or four uh, positive uh, provocative maneuvers, you can get to a sensitivity and specificity somewhere in the mid mid to 80s to low 90s um which is a lot better than individually where i think they're all around 60 uh for both sensitivity and specificity um but yeah i mean it, these are these are difficult uh patients and you're right i mean whenever we're doing procedures it's always easy to think about the the therapeutic potential of those procedures um but you know like you said when we're talking to patients it's always this is for diagnostic and therapeutic purposes right this is going to prove where this pain is coming from, uh, and hopefully it's going to treat it for um, you know a significant period of time. Um, specifically for the SI joint, I know both of us in reading this article and kind of talking about it, they left out Fortin finger, uh, which for anybody who is not aware, Fortin finger is actually when you ask the patient to localize their pain and uh, they paint to they point to the posterior superior iliac spine, and so that. Honestly, in uh, in experience of treating these patients for for years and years, has actually been I think for me the the most sensitive of all of the exam maneuvers, um, much more so than anything any of the kind of truly physical exam maneuvers uh, that we've 
that, that we discussed or that were studied in in this study. Um, and I know that you, Dr. Carvelis had said something similar as far as you know either them localizing it with foreign finger or uh, doing palpation and uh, being able to appreciate uh, pain directly over the the PSIS. And so, I mean, I think those are you know things that were were not done in the study and probably for for valid reason of I think you know the the clinical experience of those of those tools uh, does say I, I think a lot more to me as a clinician. Um, than uh, you know some of these other maneuvers, which uh, you know they discussed further in the study. Yeah, yeah, and just, and not that uh, not that these thoughts are groundbreaking by any stretch of the imagination, but you know just a, as a thought of why SI joint maneuvers may be really you know difficult, uh, especially in these um, in these in this patient population is, you know when we're dealing with the SI joint region, um, there's as we brought up, there's so many different uh, uh, pain generators in the area, you know, the obviously the lumbosacral spine being right there, um, uh, and then so much uh, musculature, the paraspinal muscul musculature, the gluteal musculature, which, you know, can be incredibly uh, uh, painful uh, for patients, especially when they're dealing with uh, chronic pain. And then the other thing to always keep in mind is that when we're dealing with chronic pain processes, that uh, the symptoms for the patient's you know, as we know in the nervous system, things start to overlap with the central sensitization, peripheral sensitization. So there be, the patients become, you know, not to their fault, but it becomes more difficult for them to pinpoint things. And so, like I said, not anything groundbreaking, but when we're dealing with an area that has so much uh, musculature, so many tendons, so many ligaments that uh, can be painful due to uh, the biomechanics in the, in the area, and then that, uh, uh, that loss of focality in the chronic pain setting, just uh, in in uh, when we're doing these maneuvers, we're we're putting the, you know like thinking about some of these maneuvers. Like for people with chronic low back pain, uh, it, it's going to be painful, and and you know <laughs> if whether they have a herniated disc or or whatever the case may be, uh, in, in most patients these maneuvers are going to be uncomfortable to some degree. So uh, just as a thought of in terms of you know why clinically these these may be difficult and um uh, of course you know as we hone our exam skills they they can become more and more uh helpful for us but uh, uh they are difficult to uh to pinpoint so what dr carvelis is saying is that if you want to learn more about the si joint go listen to our si joint article <laughs> if you want to learn more about central sensitization go listen to our, our <laughs> central sensitization podcast otherwise stay tuned for those legal disclaimers now for that legal disclaimer this podcast is for information and educational purposes only. It is not meant to be medical advice. If anything discussed may pertain to you, please seek counsel with your healthcare provider. The views expressed are those of the individuals expressing them. They may not represent the views of Spine and Nerve Diagnostic Center.